The Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure Paul would have been no friend of mine. While his letters contain some of the most freeing and liberating messages in Christianity, they also contain some writings that have done much damage to many groups of people. Consider centuries of domestic abuse, sanctioned by Paul's command in Ephesians for wives to submit to their husbands, or his declaring husbands to be the head of the household. While Paul also writes of freedom in Christ in Ephesians, he does not actually speak out against slavery itself. And this passage today from Romans certainly has not helped the LGBTQIA community any over the years. In the previous chapter from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which we heard last week, he speaks of the battle between law and sin, that internal war between wanting to do what's right and yet being unable to do so. In this chapter, in chapter 8, he writes that if you are of the Spirit, you have nothing to do with things of the flesh. And in his letter to Galatia, he defines things of the flesh as fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, and so on. This is a long and comprehensive an uncomfortable list. Today, however, Paul claims that people of the Spirit do not take part in things of the flesh. However, we know in real life this is absolutely untrue. There are plenty of easy targets to point 
an accusing finger at of spiritual people indulging in things of the flesh. It's easy to call out the Roman Catholic Church and its exposed history of clergy sexual abuse. We can even easily point across the street at the previous director of Hillel House and his recent prison sentencing. However, the ELCA as an institution, as well as its members, certainly have our own dirty laundry to air. Even setting aside perversions and abuse, if we really look at this extensive list of things of the flesh, we see that most people of the spirit have done things of the flesh. In fact, all people, if we're brutally honest, being baptized does not immunize you from things of the flesh. This passage in particular has often been taken out of context to shove all kinds of people, including those who have been baptized, into one category, the category of people of the flesh, who can only be God-pleasing if they learn to ignore, renounce, or reorient their fleshly desires. Ironic that so many people have used this same passage to oppress and alienate the LGBTQIA community, although Paul makes no mention here of homosexuality at all. This passage, among others penned by Paul, have led to practices such as conversion therapy, which asserts that a person can change his or her sexual orientation from homosexual or bisexual to heterosexual using psychological, physical, and spiritual interventions. While this theory had its roots in Freudian times in the late 19th century, it has now been deemed a form of torture by the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims and is in fact illegal in almost half of our states in this country. Little did Paul know when he wrote this letter to the church in Rome that this passage, among so many other things that he wrote, would be used to dominate, harm, and alienate so many people. But this gives us pause to think do any of us consider, when we write a thing, or post a thing, or publish a thing, that those words are out there, that they now belong to the ethos sphere, where people can twist or distort, use them to their own agenda, even if this results in harm to other people, as many people in the church have done with Paul's words. I think we may know this even better today than Paul, who did not live in times of social media, but we see this happen all the time. When an actor wins an award, or an athlete receives a trophy, or a person does some charitable act, that predictably, dirt will be dug up about said person. Some previous tweet, post, or email will be taken out of context, which will then render them shallow, inauthentic, hypocritical. One of my sons the other day said that we are living in a post hero era, because he says as soon as anyone achieves hero status, he or she will inevitably get torn apart by something from their past, thus proving, in fact, that we all find ourselves dabbling in things of the flesh from time to time. This in no way excuses the fact that we all, including Paul, have said written, and done things in our past that are reprehensible and deserving of critique, and even judgment. Even our own beloved namesake Martin Luther wrote revolutionary words that certainly changed the world, and yet 
he also wrote horrific things against the Jews, for which the Lutheran Church has publicly and officially renounced and apologized. Luther himself was flagrantly a person of the flesh, a big fan of beer, accused of fornication with the devil for marrying a runaway nun, and certainly often used his wicked temper to inflame and incite, and he often enjoyed it. We can all identify something in Paul's list of things of the flesh that implicates us. However, do these words and actions then mean that God leaves us on the hook and groveling in the dirt? Despite his controversial writings, Paul calls himself chief of sinners, yet he still remains a villain to some who suffer oppression at the hands of those who use his words to dominate and oppress. But it also makes him a hero to others, most especially to those already in power, who use his words to ensure their positions. I grew up deeply scarred and stamped by the limitations for women laid out by Paul, and I have spent much time despising him. Over the years, I rarely ever preach on him, and yet lately I have pondered this fact and also the fact that my preaching professor back in seminary used to tell me, whichever reading makes you most uncomfortable is precisely the one you need to preach on. And don't we hate it when our teachers and elders are right? Because at the root of what makes it hard for me to forgive Paul is also what makes it hard for me to forgive myself. I began the sermon by saying, that I don't think I would have wanted Paul to be my friend because of the things he wrote and said. Well, truth be told, if Paul knew me, maybe he wouldn't want to be my friend. To take Paul's corpus of writings and to examine the harm that some of his words have done to those alienated and oppressed by power structures forces me, then, to examine my own words and actions that may have inadvertently, or worse, intentionally, harmed other people. So having said this, when I consider my own long laundry list of things in the flesh I have participated in, maybe Paul would have rejected me as a friend, and I would not blame him. Thankfully, none of that matters remotely. Friendship has nothing to do with the body of Christ. The church is not a clique or a club of my closest friends, or even people whose behaviors or words I approve of. Instead, it is a radical and often motley collection of people whom God has deemed worthy and beloved, even people who have said and done intentionally or unintentionally outrageous things with the pen or flesh. How can this be? How dare we claim the identity of spiritual people while being ever entangled in things of the flesh. How dare we? Because baptism is baptism, and spirit is spirit. It means the spirit of God will not abandon when life gets messy, and life always gets messy when spiritual people participate in things of the flesh. This is the most frequent conversation I have throughout the week with my students and as my sons grow and mature, to say that the Spirit of God will abandon you if you sleep with someone or drink too much or are envious or impure is to shortchange 
and even insult the Spirit of God because it puts limitations on the power of God to love all people, all parts of people, including those parts of which we may not be most proud. So maybe instead of imposing human limitations on God's love, we might instead assume God's unconditional love for all people. The church has long used this passage from Paul, among others, to claim that the Spirit of God will only love you as long as you remain or become God-pleasing. But what does that even look like? And furthermore, it's not at all what we claim in Christian baptism. When we say, child of God, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. Forever. Not till you do something immoral, write something offensive, break a glass ceiling, come out of the closet. But forever. It means God's promise is God's promise. It means Hitler inherits the same baptismal promises I do. As he was baptized and confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church. It means that Jesus gets as many as Adam got. It means however many have sinned are as many as have been saved, and that can only mean all, including saints and monsters. Otherwise, God's promise is not a promise. It means God's grace knows no boundaries. Even when we use human words to try to rein God in, God is not, God is not a wild cat waiting for our domestication. It means we celebrate the reality, finally, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which Paul gets to a little bit later in the same chapter. He writes, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. It means, as Paul writes to his church in Galatia, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, you all are one in Christ. Even as I watch my sons grow and speak and think and act for themselves, I'm finding that they sometimes say and do and think things that grieve me and can only imagine this will continue to intensify and yet I love them entirely, even parts of them I do not like, or parts of them that are broken. I take all of who they are, all the parts and pieces, and love them completely. This kind of love can only come from God, who loves us in the same way. Let's then, as much as I hate to say it, take all of Paul. The parts we love, the parts we hate, because that's the way God loves us. Let's not use him as a cage or a bludgeon, but rather an example of a flesh-and-blood man, complete with his ego and his temper, and whatever thorn in the flesh he writes about that tortures him so. And let us thank God that our salvation does not rest on the words or the actions of Paul or Luther or you or me. 
and celebrate the goodness that comes from the boundless grace of God, which deeply searches your heart and mine, shines light on those beautiful parts and those not-so-beautiful parts, on things we are proud of and things that bring us shame. A God who lifts us all up from the dirt, offering absolution and love and peace, Instead of casting stones, Jesus always offers benediction. Amen.